collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. Good morning for another episode of Collective Power. I'm Dr. Rita Fear. I'm your host today for Collective Power. And I'm really excited for our guest, who's Iqbal Hai, who's a dear friend of mine and an urban planner. Good morning. Good morning to you, Rita. I'm really excited to be on the show today and uh, excited about the conversations we're going to have. Yeah. Wonderful. So this month, we're talking about housing and housing systems. And Iqbal is urban planner. And you're calling in from DC this morning. So thank you for being our kind of outside expert. So first of all, what does an urban planner do? So urban planning is the basically creating a plan for community development that includes economic, social, environmental, all of what makes really communities work, creates a plan and also the implementation of that plan. That's basically in a nutshell. So your transportation, your economic development, how do they link together? And so that uh, there is functionality into building cities and regions. Could you give me a practical example? So let's say in Philadelphia, uh, which I know that the previous mayor, Nantucket, he wants to make Philadelphia as the greenest city in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So he came up with policies, sustainability, to actually, in reality, see that happening. So he has some certain metrics. So he uses urban planning and urban planners to actually implement that vision. One of it could be the bike lanes, the number of bike lanes or the miles of bike lanes that are in place reflect the number of people who are actually not using cars for mainly mode of transportation, but using an alternative mode that is actually healthier. That's one example. So what you're saying is that when a tree appears in front of your street, when it didn't appear before, there's an urban planner behind that? Not necessarily. That could be just maybe ideally the city, okay, at a city level, you have plans and then anything that goes as far as physical development of neighborhoods or communities, it's part of a comprehensive plan. And so that you know, ideally it should work that way. But sometimes communities at maybe at the jurisdiction 
will decide that they need, for example, trees and that they will just implement that. So what urban planning does, it actually makes it so that it actually works with the plan, the comprehensive plan. So there are no clashes with the city vision. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So absolutely. you have vision and then you come down to implementation. Yes. Beautiful. So you're saying that Michael Nutter, which who was prior mayor, had a vision for Philadelphia being a green city. And so there were like not just one tree, but there were multiple kind of trees and spaces planned. And that's worked in sync with the culture of the community, hopefully, and the history of the community and the assets of the community. And like that is all like the urban planner gets to translate that vision into a physical plan. Yes. And it's a little bit complex. So urban planners don't work solo. So, for example, I did a lot of research in the redevelopment of the Philadelphia Navy Yard that was an industrial park, basically. Oh, that's right. You're, you did your thesis on that. That's right. I did my thesis on I that. I forgot and about so, that. Yeah. So that was actually a unique example in the U.S. where an industrial park exists in an urban area. So that brings with it so much challenges. But first of all, redeveloping that site that's been vacant for a long time and has some toxic waste and all of that. So you have experts in environmental issues. You have transportation because the site has become a smart growth or mixed-use development mm-hmm. where you have pieces of industrial uh, setting still. It's still operates. There's still some Navy operations, but also you have commercial developments. They're adding a marina. They're adding, extending the metro to that area. So you can start to see that it really takes a comprehensive approach with so many different expertise and different fields to come together. So urban planners liaise. So not only they are basically in charge of the implementation and the vision of the city, but they also work hand in hand with other professionals Mm. to Mm. make that transformation possible. Thank you so much for that example. It's really helpful. And for those of you who may not know, so the Navy Yard is a section of the city on Grace Ferry Avenue that transitioned from being an industrial Navy Yard, as you're saying, to an apartment complex. And um, there are folks living there now. And when you studied it, they were in the transition, right, between like they weren't inhabited condos yet. But at this point, they are. And it's really fascinating building. Like I drive by it. It's amazing. Maybe when you come visit me sometime in Philly, we we can go and poke on someone's door and look inside. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I love that. Um, So Iqbal, um, like besides a colleague, you're also a friend, really fascinating human being with a profound mind and a profound heart. And so I'm wondering, could you tell us a story of about yourself that gives our listeners a feel for who you are as a human being the way I know you? And in that process, also share kind of what had you get into urban planning? Like, You know, why this among the many things you could have done? So I grew up in Morocco, in North Africa. And I grew up in a town called Yusufia. And that town was actually planned. It's a city that has the second largest production of phosphates in Morocco. 
and Morocco is the world's largest producer of phosphates. Phosphates are used for agricultural products and necessary. So it's a very, very critical place. The phosphates were discovered by French while the French occupied Morocco in the early uh, 20th century. So they created kind of a model city that mimics probably some European designs. And so I grew up in a planned community where we had access to tennis and swimming pool and grocery stores and all of that. It was really a miniature example, kind of a, a closed community. It was not really open for everyone, but uh, it was really totally planned. After really some interesting experience of uh, being called blacky, uh, going to school very early on in Morocco and having like really some issues with schools, which really influenced how I interacted in school and all of that. I had kind of a miracle year when I was about 14 that had me uh, focus on school. I got separated from the teammates that I was or schoolmates that I had. And so I suddenly became interested in school. I didn't have the pressure of uh, comparing myself with my peers and all of that. And finally, you know, just something, a new kind of life uh, emerged for me. And I uh, started drawing and I won the first scholarship to study architecture in Marrakech. And Marrakech is a very important city in Morocco. It's an imperial city. It was uh, constructed in early 7th or 8th century, so very old, but also saw many, many transformation, and it's a UN heritage site. So imagine going from a very small planned community to this really large metropolitan area, which is uh, Marrakesh, and uh, studied architecture with uh, European teachers, basically, who came to teach instead of doing public service or something like that in their countries. And so there... I excelled and I uh, focused on urban planning because my mom was running for office. She was a very famous uh, midwife. And after retirement, she ran for office. And these issues of immigration and economic opportunity and all of that had me shift from architecture really to focus on urban planning. And that's where I decided after high school to come to the U.S. and pursue a degree in urban planning. That's how it all started. <laughs> Thank you. So first of all, I just have to ask this question. So you talked about being called Blackie in school, but you were in your own country. So I'm, I'm surprised by that. Like, what were the dynamics there? Well, I mean, you know, you and I did the workshop on uh, undoing racism. That's-, that's how we met. And then that's really when I got like a huge breakthrough for me to just release that there is, uh, you know, it's like an independent thing. It's like, I believe that this issue of racism really extends the walls of America. I mean, it's, it's all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if your skin color is a little bit darker and you look a little bit differently than the majority of people, then, you know, can call you blacky, basically. So for me, it's not so much what people called, but it's the impact that it had on me as a kid because I didn't verbalize it to my family. I just thought it was something really, you know, like an insult. And uh, as a young kid, I didn't have the means to really just explain or explore. I just was 
in a shame most of the time, which really impacted how I interacted with the world. Mm. So you became pretty inward and reflective as a result of those experiences? Mostly withdrawn and uh, inward. It was really withdrawn. I was withdrawn for a long time until this opportunity to study in high school. And I started to discover myself more. (laughs) Yeah. And so one of the things I know about you is that you're a big vision person. So like, what had you choose urban planning from like a vision perspective? Like, what was it that you wanted to create or generate in the world that like resonated with who you are in your heart? This is actually an excellent question. I started off in architecture because I draw. I'm somebody who is visual. I like to learn the physicality of the world by actually drawing and looking at down to the details of uh, trees and all of that. So I just thought that to do uh, architecture. But when I really started studying architecture, this details of creating space was not as interesting as looking at larger picture in which these spaces exist. So I want to tell you that one thing that really helped me explore the field of urban planning was that when I got to Marrakesh, I had to get a bike. So in Marrakesh, and one of the chapters that I wrote about Marrakesh in the uh, Middle Eastern cities, which you helped me edit, (laughs) published by Routledge, it's actually discovering the city by bike allowed me, along with my personal experience as somebody living about maybe 200, 300 miles from Marrakesh as an intern, like living in basically in a, in a dormitory, I explored the city by bike to see how people moved around. And I very quickly could see the differences in land use. Certain areas were not as developed as the city center, where, you know, there's a high density more uh, access to amenities, variety, abundance of stuff, while, for example, other areas will have super blocks, like you will walk for a long time before you can find actually another street, less green infrastructure, less access to food stores and all of that. And that was in the late 80s. It was like 89, 87 So it was also a lot of immigration from Africa, especially also Morocco, that's going to Europe. A lot of people were just jumping into boats and just Mm. escaping in masses, and many of them were dying. And so for me, I was always looking at this beauty that I see in the city and the infrastructure, its old tradition of parks and beautiful amenities, the disparities within the city and also the larger context of human rights and all of that. So that's architecture alone could not do for me. But Mm. looking at urban planning was like perfect. Mm. And I actually became the top number one student because just these concepts immediately. And I would say the issue of equity was always part of it. The justice and equity was part of it. Yes. I love what you're saying, like that you had gone originally to architecture and you realized, especially for our topic today, right? Like you left architecture because it didn't make sense for you to look at a house without looking at a neighborhood. 
right? Yes. Because the inequities, I'm just kind of reformulating what you said, right? The inequities in the neighborhood like determine what kind of amenities the house will have and the kind of house that you have determines the kind of neighborhood you have. So there's this symbiotic link between housing and like neighborhoods and planning that had like really uplifted for you inequities and your passion about equity and human rights. And yet you could see that in a Moroccan city, like you could see that in Marrakesh as much as we can see it in Germantown and in Philly, right? Germantown is my neighborhood. And that's perfect because that's like actually why I invited you today is because I thought, you know, we often think about housing systems as either homes, right? Or the thing we we um, complain about most is like around the unavailability of affordable housing, in particular in cities like Philly. And so, but we don't often talk about that piece in between, right? That that neighborhoods are planned and that there is planning around them. A lot of African-American scholars have talked about redlining and the role that redlining has played. But oftentimes, most of people in common knowledge don't quite think, like we think about this the little picture, like me housing, you know, my landlord not fixing something. And then we think about the government, right? And we don't actually see these bits in between. And you represent in the picture that you see that complex picture of what it takes for one to become the other. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here. I'm curious, from your perspective, um, what are the biggest misperceptions that people have around like housing systems and how they work? So I looked at the title. So uh, one uh, misconception is uh, collapsing affordable housing with public housing. That's one thing that I hear almost like people think it's they're synonymous, but they're not. Also, the stigmatization of public housing is one thing. When people think of public housing, it's almost like public transport. You like immediately go somewhere in your head. So I like what you said about when we tend to think about housing, we think about it as a solo kind of, it's just a house or, or a piece of real estate. But housing is very, very, very important to any national, regional, local economies. Mm. Housing is a huge industry, not only for habitation, like for habitats, for like sheltering people mm -hmm. but it also provides jobs for millions of americans in the housing construction there's so much involved in housing than people think about mm. so you are looking at the public housing versus the affordable housing so affordable housing is about according to the washington post so housing is considered market affordable it is non-subsidized. That means it's not subsidized by any government entity. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. first of all. And is affordable for households earning 60% of the area median income. In the DC mm. area, that's about $45,000. Like people who are 60% of the area, the median income in DC is about $45,000. So these households earning that much that's what affordable housing is if it makes sense it's not a it, it's like for kind of a middle class so forty five thousand dollars in dc is the 60 percent 
Yes, it's okay. the sixty percent of yeah. the area median income. Okay, so that's considered what is affordable. Philly, the median income is forty six thousand, right? So. Okay. It would be around thirty thousand. So affordable housing is a housing that is affordable to someone who has an to income has, around thirty thousand so dollars. Exactly. Ideally, it's one third of that goes to housing. One third mm-hmm. of your income. Yeah. One third. So yeah. just do the math, and that will be how much allocated to housing, and that would be affordable. So a third of the sixty percent is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Got it. Because obviously you need to leave off the other rest. Yeah. Public housing is completely different story. Public housing is actually subsidized. Low income housing is 100% subsidized. And it originated, which is interesting, back in 1937, when this New Deal legislation was enacted by President Franklin Roosevelt between 1933 and 39. And so this is really in the time of the depression, Mm -hmm. the Great Depression. And the whole idea was to provide as many housing units to people so they have shelter. Okay? Basically, that's what what it was. Like really just helping people who are like really, really very, very poor to have housing in a very short period of time. So the units basically peaked in 1990, around 1 million and a half units. This is at national terms. Let's give you a sense of hmm. how many housing, that's the peak up until now. I think that's probably the most we had in the nation, 1 million and a half about. So it's fascinating what you're saying because I I just did the math on the affordable housing thing. So in Philly, affordable housing would be a rent of $766, so $780 um, a month, right? For a single person. For a single person, exactly. Yes. And, of course, as you're saying, the public housing is where people can afford a lot less than that. This is a fascinating number because... 50% of Philly's population is under poverty level. And so it's really fascinating because assuming that we had a lot of affordable housing units at this price, right? um, Most Uh of the population isn't actually at that level of income. And so basically what Uh I'm hearing you say is that for a city like Philly, there's a double crisis, right? There's a crisis Uh of, there's a lack of housing for the working poor, Um, Mm. who would be earning probably a lot less median income. But there's also that crisis at the public housing level because, of course, a city that has 50% of poverty rate would need a lot Mm -hmm. more public housing Mm -hmm. facilities than we actually have. And we know that, like, there's been a move in Philly to to shift the high-rises to kind of more smaller housing units, And, you know, while that made the neighborhood look cuter, that's always problematic because um, there are always fewer housing units than there were people in the high rises. Right. And so there are two high rises complex that were recently destroyed in Philly, the one in West Philly. And I don't know if it was destroyed yet. I know it was vacated. But there's one like literally in our neighborhood on Queen Lane that was destroyed. And there are like these little housing units that are going up now. But you can tell that there are a lot fewer people fit in those little cute little houses. And so then the big question becomes, where did everybody else go? Mm. Yeah. 
I did some work with Berry Farm, which was a very interesting story. Berry Farm was initially bought by the uh, uh, free enslaved people. I don't remember the dates exactly, but so Berry Farm was, uh, you know, just the first site where African-Americans could own a place. And they basically built the first generation of homeowners in America, of African-Americans. And they built it, basically, they worked in the city, in the downtown, in government. And then in the evening, they would get together and then they actually built their own units by hand. That first generation, they, were, they had this farm that was donated by an um, abolitionist. So this is uh, right after the end of enslavement, basically. Yes, exactly. DC, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that was actually very interesting. So it was there. It was an extraordinary site d- divided by the main city, by the Anacostia River. But there were no physical, like no man-made, basically, obstacles like highways or something. But later on, that uh, site was encroached upon by developers who actually started to look at location for development. And the site itself became smaller and smaller. And then again, with the development, with creating this highway and all of that segregated, basically the population were there and lack of funding, lack of resources made it that it transformed into public housing that now it's almost in phase where it's going to be all demolished and, you know, kind of rebuilt as mixed income development. But always the issue about when you have public housing and you're doing some redevelopment, always the case is like you lose the number of people who are there. There will never be one-to-one replacement. Never be one-to-one. Mm-hmm. So people most right. of the time get exported somewhere else further away. Uh, so usually this urbanization where people are really closer to work or amenities, hospitals and all of that, set, find themselves in suburbia somewhere far where they no longer have sense of community, first of all, mm-hmm. and also access to the amenities that make it possible for them to get out from that cycle. The basic idea behind the uh, housing policy in the U.S. is to provide this shelter, well-being, space for Americans to thrive. Yeah. And it has not been the case. Just want to highlight this thing that you said that I think was really profound and just want to like put more a little bit more attention to it is that like when a public housing gets teared down or when a neighborhood gets redeveloped and there's not a one to one, what it does is it also kills community ties. Because, of course, what you're saying is it's not just a matter of like, okay, then you move in, you know, a housing complex where maybe you had a network of five women who traded off childcare for each other's kids for free, right? If one stays in the neighborhood and four leave, then that woman, she's just lost the free childcare system she had, right? Or in a place where uh, maybe folks traded food or, you know, which is things that people do informally that is not related to the money economy, but that we often ignore when we think about communities. Like we ignore 
the shared resources that come with deep community. And there's something about living close to each other, right? And so it's really tragic when those communities get broken apart because there's a network of relationships that gets lost. Because, you know, if now I have to move to West Philly and my friends in Germantown, so West Philly and Germantown are really badly connected by public transportation. It can take an hour and a half to move from those two sections of the city. If the friend who used to look after my kid is now in this other neighborhood, then of course, like I don't have three hours in my day to ask her to look after my kid. I've I've lost an access. And rebuilding those relationships is not as quick and easy. And, you know, I have like a lot of passion in my work for, you know, kids being lost to foster care and so on and so forth. Not only is building relationships not easy, but building relationships with people you trust with your child is not easy. Like that takes years, sometimes Uh, decades of knowing each other to be able to actually leave your child with someone, which is why I'm really passionate about free child care besides free health care. I'll let that ramble go off for another time. (laughs) Well, you're talking about the social construct. And one thing that I've also been interested in, you can have all these ideal envisioning exercises that most cities and municipalities and all of that do. In paper, it looks great. But in reality, these social constructs, in my opinion, are the most critical aspect of creating thriving communities. And you know, it's funny that now with COVID-19, we are starting to actually experience a little bit of creativity in how a crisis of this measure, where millions of Americans are losing jobs, how do you solve an issue using human capital? How do you innovate Mm. and create communities that actually wants to build for a better future because you never know. And then these things become more important than the actual infrastructure that most budgets go to. Like, oh, let's create these infrastructures, bicycle, da-da-da-da-da-da. But the human capital interactions where people thrive together, it doesn't matter the income levels. Some places are experimenting with mixed income. But it's been very difficult to find because there are cultural gaps that often come Mm. where there's stigmatization of people of lower incomes. And that, in my opinion, needs to change. And there are some groups like The Voice, which we'll talk about later, their approach into community building and building power that has it invent almost new ways of connecting communities together to face larger challenges. Yeah, I love what you're saying about human capital being one of the aspects that we tend to dismiss or not focus on, while actually human capital is the one thing that we all have, and it goes beyond money, right? It goes beyond money access. And so human capital or relationships, like I was saying, like the trading of resources, right? That's human capital. But it's also trust, like everything that relationships create, I'm pretty sure most of the research shows that communities that are diverse in terms of levels of income are actually communities that are more stable. And yet it's really the barrier there is culture because of all the kind of racism and classism that comes with like different perceptions about how different culture is around class. Absolutely. 
So let's go to organizations like The Voice. Like, I want to hear, where do we have collective power? So if I think at a city p- planning level, I think there's a the common misperception is that we have no control over it, right? That the city or the government chooses the stuff about our neighborhood and we have no say. And so tell us a little bit, what collective power do we have and how can we leverage it? highlight few things before we move on to this collective power sure. about the public housing because it seems that you're really interested in it and it actually raises something that I learned while doing research for the show that I actually was not even aware of um, prior to this. There were like parts of the stigmatization again and I would link it up to this uh, collective power building and all of this you have to understand the issue before you start to organize for it. Mm-hmm. So the issue of public housing is huge. And it really started, basically, the demise of this public housing was linked to the policy, the legislation that was first created by Franklin Roosevelt in 1937, which put in it, it constricted, it constricted its development, meaning the amount of money that is allocated for these developments were very, very bismal. The, there were some issues like legislation made, imposed, basically, the tenant selection, project location, design, and construction quality. So when we look at public housing and we're almost like, oh my God, they don't look really nice and all of that, nobody chose that. It was imposed by the legislation. They do not compete by, with the private sector development. So that's one. The concentration of very low income, we're talking about 20% median salaries. That's $10,000 almost a mm-hmm. year. So concentration of people who are really disabled or elderly, no access to a lot of things, put so many people with precarious conditions together, almost you're suffocating people there and areas where, and something else, the locations where these projects were, that local communities, so you have a federal policy or legislation, and then you're saying, okay, you know what, it's going to be implemented at the local level, you know, with public housing authorities being in charge of it, okay, collecting rents and all of this to actually deal with the maintenance of these facilities so you have issues first of all low-income people then money is not coming in a lot and then uh, some localities so they choose yes or no to have these public housings it was not mandatory for local areas to have them Mm -hmm. so affluent neighborhoods definitely refused to have something like that Mm -hmm. and if they did and they're white neighborhoods usually Sometimes in the past, they would just accept white, low-income residents, purely. Mm-hmm. So that now what you have is that in certain areas where minorities concentrated in areas. So local communities that accepted this public housing, because they do get some money probably for that, they actually chose the worst sites for these. Mm-hmm. Near highways, not dumpsters, hazardous conditions. Yeah. Like yeah, you have yeah, a sure. group of people in the, the poorest, most historical trauma, most kind of combination of social, physical, medical issues 
like in the same concentrated in the same lowest income in the same place and in the most kind of the areas that have fewest resources right so about no 61% yeah, yeah, 61% of public housing units were located in central cities versus 19% in suburbia. So yeah. the, all the white flight and all of that. And public housing residents are twice to three times who live in predominantly minority communities. Yeah. Yeah, so basically from an urban planning perspective, what you're saying is that when we think about public housing, for people who tend to think of public housing as a problem, what you're yes. saying is that it's not public housing that is the problem. What is the problem is that we've restricted so much the resources around public housing that exactly. then in the end, there are these like islands with very few, like islands of people who need most resources with the fewest resources. Like that's the big but, picture. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then you think like when you think of public housing, most people think they're African-Americans or, you know, Spanish or minorities, like, you yeah. know, people of color. But 50% of public housing residents are white. Yeah, exactly. And because, again, like I said, there's some neighborhoods who are, will be more kind of affectionate towards a white low income. And if they are in an affluent neighborhood, so they have access to these places, yeah. public house, uh, schools and all of that, the probability for these people to move up in society is greater than if you have people segregated in certain places where you have almost problems, mental health problems, physical, actually endangering people's lives with asbestos or lead or humidity in construction, because these places were so, so poorly constructed, again, based on the resources that they have. So that's why the stigmatization of this public housing, like you said, it's not necessarily because they are, it's inherent in public housing. It's really the policies behind it. It's the way and, we did and, it. And yes. That's messed up. It's not public housing. Where do we have collective power here? So here is the, an example that I um, just came to my mind immediately when you asked me about the subject. There is a, a group, it's a nonprofit group uh, called Voice, which is Virginians organized for interfaith community engagement. So VOICE works primarily with residents in low-income communities across Northern Virginia, and it's made up of a team of religious community leaders, and they have affiliation with this Industrial Areas Foundation, which is a network of faith organizations. They advocate for better housing, healthcare, immigrant rights, and other issues. So being kind of a very active in the mosque where I am, it's called Dal Hijra. And that's how I really get to know voice work. What I loved about what they do, first of all, is that they organize building relationships, building power through relational conversations, and they build relationships on a one-to-one -one basis. And this allows the organizers to actually understand deeply the issues that the communities are dealing with. And they go up and they organize, like let's see in various communities, instead of having a silos, like, okay, only this community is dealing mm. with transportation or whatever. They put a collective, they look first of all in basically the what is so, the reality of the issues. 
And then they compare this data and they start to see, well, where they would put their efforts to put pressure on governments. And then they come up with solution that way. One thing that they have, for example, they stop very big in stopping eviction, like with the COVID-19. COVID-19, they took like, a, they jumped this action. They launched an online petition to ensure that no one would be evicted due to the pandemic. So they requested, for example, to put moratorium. This is really way before when we were talking about national extending 12 months for everyone. And moratorium now is not guaranteed. It's just a conversation around what's possible if people that are affected by losing jobs and everything, the grace period that they need to have to pay their rents, and then they're extending it to 12 months. But what I'm saying is that, in my opinion, the work that they're doing actually is, it brings about, in conversation, like creating a future now in conversation, that it's not a strategy in the back in their minds. They're actually through these conversations, one-on-one, they get to the source of the problems and then they put collective power, involve these local communities and then go for the win. And they have been. Yeah, I love what you're saying, especially because what you're saying is their effectiveness comes from networking, not just doing community engagement, but networking across neighborhoods. Because oftentimes community engagement is relegated to within the neighborhood. I was just looking at a bunch of proposals by the city of Philadelphia yesterday, right? Like they're all community engagement, one neighborhood at a time. What I hear you saying is that when we focus on one neighborhood at a time, we are reinforcing the structures of inequity that are already there. While if we look at the citywide across neighborhoods, then there's a place to do activism and organizing to address topics that are actually felt citywide as opposed to just one neighborhood at a time? Well, you know what? Yes, there is a ripple effect. So they look at the impact on not only the individual communities, but they actually look at the bottom line for the municipalities and the regions. Mm -hmm. So when you actually start to see that, what is the impact of losing $50 billion in rent revenue from tennis across the country? See, they look at the big picture. They look at the, from the small, they look at the universal Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So that's the power also is actually looking at these impacts. And then so that way they use the local governments also as their, they look at who is now a stakeholder. Who can we build relationship with? So it's not this relationship building only with community members. It involves everybody who is involved. And I Mm -hmm. think a classic, beautiful example that I've actually uh, saw with them doing in 2007, for example, something that I thought so is was so creative that they put pressure. They do a lot of homework. So in terms of uh, affordable housing, they looked the metro owned public lands around metro area and they were in need of money, of funds. Mm. So they proposed plan to help them sell the stock to actually have and then in terms have a percentage of affordable housing near metro so they're proposing for the city this is the alexandria city to actually adopt this proposal so that it resolves the problem of the metro system having cash that they needed 
and by selling the property adjacent to it that it owns as public lands to actually develop housing that includes affordable housing. And they detail how it would be Mm. done. So now when you're talking about urban planning that most people think, oh, you need an urban planner. This is now not urban planners who are doing this work. These are community Mm. <laughs> you know, they're organizers right. that so, are really, really cared. These are not salaried. So in this case, it's organizing to both and, right? It's collecting the information that's across neighborhoods and across cities to leverage the power of our local and state and federal representatives, right? So there's that span wide work. But there's all the in-depth work that you're talking about that is within each neighborhood. And it's crossing the knowledge of both of those and having a base and a strategy so that when the city planner comes into the picture, there's already a vision. Like the community already has, we have a vision for ourselves. Exactly, exactly. So it's a proactive approach and... And it's not glamorous work. It's consistent, hardworking work that stems from. Oh, I love what you just said. So it's not glamorous work. It's long-term, consistent, conversational work. Love that. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Yes. It's been really great having you today. Do you have any final thoughts? And then could you let us know um, where people can find you and find out more about you and find out about Voice? Sure. First of all, I'm really grateful to be part of this conversation. I learned so much from it and I get to know you a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your strong voice and uh, advocacy. My last thoughts is basically, I like to see, you know, when we think about uh, spiritual development, we're mostly concentrate on individual connection to higher power, to Mm -hmm. God, to the Mm -hmm. Almighty. And I'm now starting to think about the possibility of actually extending this spiritual development to include the well-being of of communities. Mm. So what would it look like if we collectively do this exercise where our individual well-being depends on the real health and prosperity of the community at large? And this is really where I want to put my heart and soul in doing research and starting to really excavate the resources and essays and all of that to actually see how we can do that. So bringing spirituality into this dimension of what it means to be together, to have well-being as a community. I love that. Yes. And Mm -hmm. redefining what spirituality means, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's an actual physical manifestation instead of this kind of a individual highs that we have when we go to church or mosques or something. I think that's really beautiful because I know carry a really profound spiritual practice. And although I'm not Muslim, you know, we talk often across and I, I think one of the reasons our friendship has grown to be so deep is because you have provided me an insight into Islam um, that's been kind of more profound than anyone else I ever know. Not because they don't have it. It's just we've talked about it a lot. I love that you're bringing together your profound spirituality with your passion for thriving communities. That's wonderful. Thank you. So where can people find out about you and your work? And are you writing about this? Because I want to read whatever you write. How do we find out about you? How do we follow you? 
Well, I am uh, definitely creating a medium, a profiling medium, so I can actually start to put uh, these uh, essays out. I am uh, reachable at denizenstudiodc at gmail.com. And I think you put it on the profile or? I will, uh, I will add it to our resources page um, just later on. Typically, I do it on Friday. If you look by Saturday, it's there. Yes, and I'm available for consultation, focusing on, again, health of communities beyond just shelter and all the issues we talked about. So, yes, and feel free to include my phone number as well. Wonderful. And you can find out more about Iqbal on our website. We'll put the additional information so you can contact her. Thank you so much for this conversation. You've definitely expanded uh, my understanding. Um, and thank you for bringing forth kind of this link, right? Linking the house to the neighborhood and helping us understand the role of city planners, but especially helping us understand how we as communities can activate and play a stronger role. It's really been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.